And that song is filled with hope, the eternal hope, living hope that we'll be talking about uh, this morning. And I appreciate that, uh, the gospel that's given in song. I was thinking about this uh, throughout this week as I was uh, summarizing uh, one of the uh, books uh, for the blog that we put out, the uh, book called Sing. And uh, I was just thinking about this, this idea that someday we'll have our last tear. Someday we'll have one last broken heart. One last disappointment. And in this world, in this life, someday there'll be one last song. One last goodbye. What will that song be? Your last song will be largely determined by what you sing today. Thank you, Chris, for teaching us songs of the gospel. Part of our worship is to sing about what Jesus has done and continues to do in the gospel. And no greater thing to sing about. I want that to be my last song, a song about the gospel. And can you imagine as you're fading away To be able to sing one last time, I will arise when he calls my name. What a great hope. That's what I want to talk about this morning is the hope, living hope, that we have in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our uh, study in this book. As we're really just beginning into this, this living hope. Um. What we have in the gospel, it's it's amazing. Uh, What has hope is usually directly related to whatever is our greatest frustration. For instance, uh, someone on a tow truck may not be of much use to you. Uh, Someone that has special tools to get into your car, you may actually try to avoid unless your only key to your car is locked inside the trunk. Uh, then that person represents great hope, and the hope is directly connected to our need. And so when we talk about the gospel, we talk about salvation, we're talking about forgiveness of sin, we're talking about being made right with God, is directly related to our understanding that that is our greatest need. That in all the things that plague us in our heart and our life, that they're all tied to a relationship with God, and that if that's not fixed, that's not repaired, then everything else gets tainted. In life, it seems to me that as for the believer, as we're living life, life is really about teaching us that one hope is false after another. And that when it's all said and done, it is the focusing our life unto one singular hope in our life, and that all along the way, these various hopes get shown for what they are. It's false. Um, you know, you, as you're young, you think strength and beauty. Strength and beauty, and, and so much of your time is spent on strength and beauty. But then you read things like uh, Proverbs that says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who pleases the Lord shall be praised. We read Proverbs where it talks about the glory of the young men is their strength and the glory of the old is their gray hair. I've thought about that. Well, that's not much of a deal, you know. Lose strength, gain gray hair. Um, 
But what that is, is, is teaching about wisdom, right guys? Uh, is the understanding of, of what wisdom accumulation is. But as we live life, we realize that strength fades. Beauty fades. Our heart fades. We look in our finances and our finances fades. You know, some, sometimes it's, it's just uh, one cavity away of, okay, I've got to figure out life because now finances has got this kink. Uh, and so kinks happen all the time, do they not? Uh, we find that relationships can deteriorate and relationships can go away with great heartbreak. Even our own children uh, is not a guarantee of any type of future, any type of prosperity, uh, that they too can quickly go away. In all of life, we start to realize uh, that as we rise up with our youth and think, oh, all of life is in front of us, and all these great sources of strength and sources of hope, and as you live life, you realize that, nope, 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 not that either, no, not that. And so when it's all said and done, your body is decayed, and your heart's faded, and what hope remains? <laughs> this is not very encouraging, is it? Uh, actually, it is, <laughs> because the hope that remains is the only hope you ever had to begin with, and is the hope that continues, is a living hope, and will take us into eternity. And so if we can set our heart and mind right now, wherever we're at, on that hope, it is the best preparation for heart attacks, all right? It is the best preparation for bankruptcy, uh, is understanding the living hope today. It is the best preparation for death. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask we turn and look uh, specifically. I'm going to start reading uh, with verse 8, but we're going to focus on verse 10, 11, 12. Um, and so if, we're going to, uh, if we read this together, let's stand in honor of what we're reading together of, of God's word here. If you'll read silently as I read aloud to you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. I'm captured by verse 8 uh, in that when Peter writes this, he's not, uh, he's not saying that some of you experience these things. He's writing to believers spread uh, all throughout. Uh, and notice how he describes these believers. He says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He is not saying, I, I, if I was saying this today, I might say some of you are filled with inexpressible joy with glory. 
But that's not what he says. He, he doesn't say some of you. He doesn't say, I wish that you. He says, you have been filled with an inexpressible joy filled with glory. Now, how can he say that? He said, he's saying that because that is a side effect of those who have experienced the saving work of Jesus in their life. They have experienced what it is to be forgiven by God, and they have the Spirit of God working in their life, and they have been touched and pressed with God's love for them, and a side effect is inexpressible joy with glory. So let me just state that for a second and give us a little check. Is that your experience? Do you look back and think, yes, I have had a joy in my life that is inexpressible. I can't quite communicate and tell folks how it is that God is working in my life. And that, that is what seems to be, as he writes to people who are enduring difficulty and suffering, he says, but this is who you are. This is what's happened in your life. And I just want to pray for that and just bring that as a challenge to us that if that is not happening, then it might reveal that there are other hopes that are getting in the way of the living hope. And it's going to be just a matter of time before God starts weeding these things out and showing us living hope. So... Uh, in fact, that's why he, he brings out that you have, verse 6, going through various trials, but you are still rejoicing in these various trials. Uh, and so in rejoicing, it reveals the genuineness of your faith, and also it brings great glory to Christ. Living hope. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Have you ever tried to grow glass? Hopefully not. Hopefully we have been... Uh, aware of life to know that we don't pick up pieces of glass and plow the dirt and put glass in the dirt with water and fertilizer and put sun on it. We don't do things like that. We don't plant rocks, though it seems like rocks pop up in our yards, right? Uh, well, why is that? Because there's not within glass life. But God has made seeds it's, it's an amazing, it looks so dormant, it looks like some, well, something you can eat, it's just so minuscule, but within it, in God's design, there's life. And so if you take that seed and put it in the dirt and water it and fertilize it and let sun happen, and, and so God's in his working brings life out of that seed is a miracle, isn't it? I just think about it for a second, and what I want to just share with you is that the gospel is living hope. That's what the scripture is saying. It's, it's a living hope versus the pieces of glass that we might have. They might sparkle for a little while. They might reflect nice in the sun, but they do not give us hope. And so I'm just going to challenge us that there might be some things like that that look good, but not giving us hope. Whereas the gospel gives us some substance, some direction, and life that has hope that is inexpressible joy within it. So with that being said, why is this? Why is this salvation a living hope? Uh, he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, you who've you've not seen Jesus, yet you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe him and rejoice with joy. I, I think that Peter, as he writes this, may be thinking back to uh, when Jesus was encountering Thomas after the resurrection, and Thomas said, unless I, I see with my eyes and touch my uh, hands the holes in his feet, in his hands, his feet, and his side. And so Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, here I am. 
And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you've believed, you've seen. But blessed are those who will not see, but yet believe. I think that may have been resonating in Peter's mind as he's writing this. This is you. This is us. This is the ones that Jesus prayed for in John 17, who would believe from the testimony of the word. And so, concerning this salvation, um, what I would share with you is that salvation is a living hope for, first of all, it's from God. It's a living hope because it comes from, from him. Uh, notice how we read this passage, and it talks about what God is doing on our behalf. He says, uh, verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Grace that is coming uh, to you. That means it's coming from God. It's something that we don't necessarily get because we're doing everything right is because God is working on our behalf. He's working toward us. And that's what's different about religions versus what we have in the Christian faith. If you go to religions, it would often tell you, here are the things you do. Here is the state of mind that you get into. Uh, Here is the meditation. Here are the attitudes that we are to seek and to find with the hope that God will find us deserving and grant us good things. But what you have instead in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what God has done. The story of Jesus coming as God in flesh, living the life we should have lived and, and we didn't live, doing it with the right motive of love for God, and through the gift of Jesus dying on the cross, provides for us forgiveness. So this is not a place where pride steps in and says, look, I'm better than everyone else. Grace is a humbling thing to say the only reason you're here is because God allows it and wants you to be here. It is a living hope because it comes from God. Just as the seed has life in it because God designed it, God has designed this message of Jesus dying on the cross for you and forgiveness given to you through him, that has life in it. It has life in it. And so, let's keep on reading it. Salvation is a living hope for it is from God. He takes the initiative. But let's Let's keep on reading. Salvation is a living hope to you because it's God's word. It's God's word. Notice how we read this. Who prophesied, these prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What is he saying? That the Old Testament... Everything that has been studied up to this point, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Moses, Abraham, David, all these characters that we get all these stories about and we listen and we think, oh, these are, these are great stories. Well, what they actually are, are men that God was working through to seek the salvation for mankind. You see, right from the very beginning... In Genesis 3, we have man rebelling against God. They thought that they could live life apart from their own. And so they get all the consequences with it, including uh, death, sickness, 
pain. And you see right from the beginning, the beginning of marital disunity and you know, disharmony uh, between the genders that happens right then and there. Uh, and so uh, pain in working, pain in life comes from this. And so God gives them a promise in Genesis 3 that I'm going to provide a seed who will come and will give the death blow to the enemy. And so from that point on in Genesis and then throughout uh, of the Old Testament is a search, who's going to be the seed that's going to come? And God starts narrowing it down as time goes on and, and says eventually, well, it's going to come from this Abraham line. It's going to come from the Jewish line. Uh, and then he says, well, it's going to come from the Judah line of Abraham, of, of Isaac. And so you see it just get narrowed down, narrowed down to eventually it's going to come from the line of David. And then it's going to come at this time. And so when we finally leave from Malachi to Matthew, we see that the fullness of time has come and it's God's promised son through Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus, after dying, was walking along the way and found a couple men who were really down and depressed, had no hope. And he comes across them on the way to Emmaus. And he said, why are you so down? He said, well, didn't you hear? We thought this one was from God and he was crucified. And from that point on, he, the, the scripture says, he took the scriptures, beginning with Abraham and Moses, and showed throughout the, with these two men why Jesus had to die and rise again. Jesus understood that this was all about him. And so when we read the Old Testament, it's to point to Jesus. You see, what we have is not just a bunch of teachings with stories. If you read um, some of the Quran, you're going to have a bunch of stories with teachings. And the main idea is do the teachings with these stories that come along. Stories don't have to be true or not. Just go with these teachings. Uh, when you see Buddhism, you see teachings with some stories aside. It doesn't really matter if the stories are true. No one really knows if these are true or not. Just do the teachings. But what you have in the Christian faith is not teachings with stories. What you have in the Christian faith is a story with some teachings. See, the point of it isn't just the teaching. The point of it is the story of God redeeming people to himself, finding broken people, as we've sung about, fixing them through his grace and through his spirit, giving them a new future. And that is the story of God working through and revealed in the New Testament and the Old and then you have the teachings that come alongside. But the point of it isn't just the teachings. The point of it is, look what God has done for us. This is the gospel. And so that's why he says this is a great salvation concerning the salvation. This is what the uh, prophets were looking for, inquiring. So let me just talk a little bit about how we have the Bible. Some people think, well, you know, did, did God just uh, dictate this thing? And, and some man just kind of went into a trance and started writing things? The way the Bible describes this is that God superintends over this. In other words, they use their personality, they're using their brain, they're searching, they're thinking through. But God, all the while, is working through that, through mankind, so that his message is perfectly revealed uh, through the personalities of, of mankind. And so when you read the scriptures, you'll see different styles, different personalities, because they are different personalities. But through it all, over the span of about 1,400 years of the Bible being written with uh, many different writers, backgrounds, prophets, uh, uh, kings, shepherds, fishermen, 
Yet there's this unity, this harmony that goes from the beginning to end that tells this one story. Why? Because God superintended working over it so his perfect message would be given. And so we know his word. We know this hope. We know this gospel through reading of his word. And what we're talking about here is not just intellectual facts. Not just knowing, okay, Jesus died in Bethlehem, lived 30-some years, and died on the cross. It's not just the details of that. But it's the insights of what it means that God has done this for us and the various applications in all the areas of our life. To know the gospel, reading the word of God, and that's why the Bible describes it as a living book, that as I go through it in the various circumstances of life, I read it, and now the gospel speaks into my life in a way it couldn't do five years ago because I was in a different place five years ago. I'm, I'm dealing with different issues, but the word of God, the gospel still speaks into these areas of my life. And for uh, I talked with some of the older saints in our church, and, I, and the great hope, I realize, is that it doesn't matter if you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80, and beyond, that the Word of God still speaks into your life no matter how many experiences you have. It is a living Word for a living hope because it comes from the living God and His Word for us. So salvation is a living hope for us for it is God's Word. I was um, thinking through um, one of C.S. Lewis's book, The Stories of Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in one of the, the books, uh, Magician's Nephew, uh, it tells the beginning of this fictional world of Narnia. Of course, C.S. Lewis is uh, basing a lot of things from the New Testament and the gospel as somewhat allegorical. And so in it is this interesting phrase, and he kind of is bringing out how he pictures the creation coming to count when the Bible says, in the beginning was God, and, and God with a word created something out of nothing. There's a lot there. So let me just read a part of that. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away. Diggory, character, found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath him. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth itself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could barely, hardly bear it. The horse seemed to like it too and gave the sort of whiny, whiny noise a horse would give if after years of being a cab horse it found itself back in the old field where it played as a foal and saw someone whom it remembered and loved coming across the field to bring it a lump of sugar. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices. More voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do in a summer and evening. One moment, there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand a thousand points of lights leaped out, single stars, constellations of planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing. And that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. Glory be, 
I've been a better man all my life. I've known there were things like this. The voice on the earth was now louder and more triumphant. But the voices in the sky, after singing loudly with it for a long time, began to get fainter. And now something else was happening. Far away and down near the horizons, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, fresh, very fresh, began to stir. The sky in that one place grew slowly and steadily paler. You could see shapes of hills, hills standing up dark against it. All the time the voice went on singing. The eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun rose. Diggory had never seen such a sun. The sun above the ruins of his home looked older than ours. This looked younger. You can imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up. And as beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad, swift river wound its way, flowing eastward towards the sun. Southward there were mountains. Northward there were lower hills. But it was a valley of mere earth, rock, and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright. And it stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was wide open to song. And it was about 300 yards away. You see in his imagination of what it could be like to hear a voice so powerful, so beautiful, that with the voice, out of nothing, something begins. And as we look over the earth and see the beauty of it, it's just taints, shades of a voice more beautiful still. When we hear the thunder and see the lightning and see the fires, it is of a power that is just a shade of a voice more powerful still. That with the voice the earth can shake, it is the voice that is even more powerful than the earthquakes itself. More than the tidal waves and the thunders of the waves hitting upon the rocks. More than the beauty of the flowers and the suns and the mountains. More than the beauty and creativity of the humans around us. You see the voice of God and what the Bible is saying here as we read this. That voice, the voice, the creative voice of God is the voice of God revealing himself through ways you and I can get. person jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory full of full of the full of the father and what we have is the record of that voice and scriptures a living word that speaks to us and so why is this a living hope because first it comes salvation is from god but it is also it is god's word but let's lastly let me just say that salvation is a living hope for it is God's word to you. It is God's word to you. Notice the emphasis as we read this. Verse 10. These prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves, but you. Why is Isaiah written? Why is Jeremiah written? Why are the Psalms written? They are written for you. They were not serving themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news 
to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look into. And so what I want to share with you is as we read what God has done for us in 1 Peter and all throughout the scripture, this is God's word to you. He's had countless of prophets. The Spirit of God working the disciples, the apostles working and giving their life for at this generation, at this time, so that you would hear that God loves you. He knows what has happened in your life. He knows the mistakes of our life. And he says that doesn't stall him. It doesn't hinder him from loving you. And he has hope for you if you would just make Christ your king and know the glory inexpressible joy of what it is to have forgiveness in your heart and your life to say i can give you hope that's not deterred from some broken relationships or some failed finances or a broken body there is a hope that is beyond all these things it's revealed to you i was talking with one of my friends it was an intense conversation. He set it up with me, and uh, he wanted my help. He was struggling with areas of his life, and he said, I need someone to help me. I need someone that will pray for me. I need someone that will check on, on me and ask me hard, difficult questions. I sense that God is moving in my heart, and I don't like who I've become, and I need help. Can someone help me? And, and perhaps maybe you can help me with God's help. I don't know if you've had to be in a conversation like that, or if you've ever initiated a conversation like that. I pray that you have. I think it's something all of us have to do. We need the help of others. As he shared this, he said, I, I should share with him, so I need to share something with you. So you've brought this to me. I want you to know that weeks before you ever talked to me about this, I had been personally impressed by God from what I was reading in his word while I was teaching the church and what I was praying about, that I asked God, would he give me someone I can minister to that is dealing exactly with the issues you're sharing with me. So I said it publicly. You can go look and see. And when he heard that, he just started weeping. He just bawled in a way guys don't normally do in front of other guys. Why? He bawled because it was in that moment when what had been impressed upon his heart he realized it wasn't just some fantastical thinking. It wasn't just some frustration. He was confirmed through a brother that God had spoken to him. And that God was calling him. And he had brought other brothers in without his initiative, without his knowing. God did that. And it was just this, this moment, this experience of realizing that God wants him. Listen. I don't know all that's going on in your life what this week looked like. But this is the message that comes from this text right here. Is that why? Because you're sitting here right now and you're hearing this. I can say to you that God is giving this message to you saying he wants you. He's calling you to seek him. To put away false hopes and know him 
as the living hope. Yes, it's going to require surrender, but in the place of surrender, there's something called inexpressible joy filled with glory. That's a good trade. It's a good trade. It's interesting, this salvation, verse 12, is revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit is the one using this word right now. If this has any impact on you, it's not because of me. Holy Spirit knows you. He's doing that. That's how we have what we have through the Holy Spirit. But then he says, things into which the angels long to look. This longing to look, it's, um, it's more than just beholding, more than just gazing. In fact, it, it speaks more about obsessed by. This salvation, God work for us, his grace, his forgiveness, his love for us. These are things that angels are obsessively looking into. I, uh, it, it, you, know, you learn a lot about people by what they gaze into. You think about whatever you gaze into, you reveal yourself. A couple weeks ago we were at the beach and we were, uh, had this place where there's a big window right in front of the ocean and uh, and so it's kind of captured the, the small wall, and you know there's a TV there, there's interaction with the family, and uh, there's cleaning up things, you know, cooking and stuff. But every it seemed like every time you go by the window, you couldn't help but just stop, just stare. <laughs> what exactly are we staring at? Are we wondering if a wave's going to come? You know, <laughs> the waves have been coming for centuries and centuries. I mean, it's, for millennia they've been coming. There. This is constant, but it's like we can't. Look away. We have to look at the next wave. We have to look at the, the next uh, sunset, the sunrise, and, and look and see are there any fish jumping up and down. And then we look at the people and we watch them. And, and then when I'm looking at the people, I'm looking at what the people are looking at. And, and it's just this constant thing of, of the gaze that reveals our heart, the things that we long to look into. If we go into your house, what do you have on your walls? Where do you have the TV? Uh, how is the situation set up? It reveals what we long to gaze into, right? It reveals our heart. Angels are pretty significant in their being. I don't think there's a human alive that matches their glory, their power, their might, their wisdom. And what is it that has captured their imagination? What captures their gaze? It's what God has done for you. So that when Jesus comes upon the earth, as a little baby, the angels come, not just one, but by the multitudes, singing to a group of shepherdmen, a few shepherdmen. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Look what God has done for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and he shouted by the multitudes to few men that the world will count as insignificant. Oh, if your eyes could open up to see the heavens, to see the spiritual realm as they look at your heart, as they hear these words, as they remember what God has done, and look at its impact on your heart. The Bible says that when one 
sinner repents, that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. There is an amazement and a gazing, an obsessive look. <laughs> we think we're obsessed by the phones and the, uh, the social media. Imagine how the angels are obsessed by looking at the gospel's impact in your life. So what does that mean? I, let me just go into verse 13. And, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. In other words, salvation is, has been done, being done, will be done. I have been saved by the penalty of sin as I'm speaking and working, living and surrender to the Spirit of God. I'm being saved by the power of sin. But one day soon, someday, we'll look ahead and we'll be removed from the very presence of sin. The salvation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's a past, present, future that we're looking to. And so let that be my hope. If the angels are obsessed by it, then maybe I should be obsessed by the same thing. So preparing my minds for action, being sober-minded. Let me share what that looked like this morning for me. Have you ever had bouts of insecurity? Just not good enough. And we can look at various things that happen, words said throughout the day, and we interpret it as that message. I knew it. Just not good enough. Our I'm not worthy of being loved. It's a voice that comes crying out, screaming out from time to time, or a whisper in our ear. I was struggling and wrestling with that. And I read this passage, verse 13. I never took so much comfort in the command of being sober-minded. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. Don't think of yourself more than you ought. Do not think of yourself too highly than you ought to realize, you know what? I'm okay. People don't have to like me. I don't have to be in or adequate in the eyes of the people around me. I can be sober-minded and I can be free to say, you know what? I'm loved by Jesus Christ. I'm loved by God. And it's okay. Let me be sober-minded. And set my hope fully on the grace that was brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My hope is not fully set on the impression I have in somebody or whether someone's going to like me or whether something's going to succeed or whether my health is just right or I wake up and I have a good hair day or a bad hair day. I don't have my hope set on these things. Because there's something more worth gazing into in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray that God uses this to reveal the false hopes and drive us firmly on the living hope. And someday when your last tear is shed and your last heart is broke, your last broken heart, and the last song you sing, may it be the song of the Redeemer, the song of grace that cures and redeems and restores every broken heart. Every tear shed. Let's pray.